Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Monday, December 4th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered these tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, and that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. Or if you choose not to do that or you're listening through the archives and you'd like to register a question, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. 
Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. And if we get a comment or question from you through the email, we'll address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback or input. And we are very grateful whenever anybody chooses to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work when people let us know how this stuff is landing for them. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just one whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you. How can we be of support? What's working and what isn't? And how can we help you progress in your ability to make good effective and efficient use of these tools to improve the quality of your life. That's why we're here. That's why the websites are maintained. That's why the Internet show has been going for almost 13 years now. Um, it'll be 13, we'll finish our 13th year in January. And um, it's why the archives are maintained. It's why the app was developed. It's why Michael and Jeannie spend so much of their time, intelligence, money, and energy on this project and series of projects because it has improved the quality of their lives and their experience has been that the more other people apply these tools, the more it improves the quality of other people's lives. So, please let us know what we might do to support you in building the skills to effectively, efficiently use these tools in a way that brings, I'll say clarity, I'll say more joy, more aliveness, more accurate experience of life and the flow of life. And um, that's why we're here. Because everybody who supports this work has had the experience that the more they use these tools in their lives, the better their quality of life gets. And if there's something we can do to help you improve your quality of life, that's right in line with our intention with this work, and we'll do what we can to facilitate that happening more and more efficiently and more quickly. Among the things we've been doing in this work is the reading of and commenting about the way of mastery. And we've spent quite a while now on the third lesson. And we have, um, we're going through it the second time um, more slowly, more methodically, um, looking for 
little gems, little hidden gems that we might miss when we race right through or we think that, oh, I think this means I'm, I'm supposed to do this, that, or the other. My mind is telling me this is what the way of mastery means. And every time that happens, whether I realize it or not, it's pulling me away from what the way of mastery is trying to open up in me. The way of mastery as a, as a tool is trying to help me get out of my mind, trying to help me get out of knowing in that intellectual sense what this is about so I can explain it to somebody else. The way of mastery says right after it gives the very first axiom, it says, as soon as we tell you the first axiom, your mind is going to say, but wait a minute, I can't be responsible for what's going on in my life. I didn't choose this or that negative thing happening. And almost immediately, the way of mastery after it gives the first axiom, which is simply nothing that you experience is caused by anything outside of you. You experience only the effects of your own choice. And this book understands that as soon as we make a statement like that, the intellect is going to jump up and say, um, that's, that's garbage. That's not the way it really works. I didn't bring this on myself. I would never have created this upset or this panic. And the way of, of uh, the heart says, the way of the heart is not the way of the intellect. So your intellect can argue about this all at once. But your intellect was never designed to be your master. It was designed to be a very simple, effective tool that can be used by the awakened heart. So what we're trying to do as we go through this work, methodically and slowly, and now this is our second time through in this year's work, is to help resonate energies and help you step into experiences that you cannot think your way into. Area code 610, is it Susan? Hi, Dr. Tim. <clears throat> I've had a, um, a series of thoughts as a result of the uh, readings you've been doing, and one is that <clears throat> when we have something good happen, something that we define as good, I think, well, at least I know, I think, well, that's the way it should be, and uh, I brought this to myself. It's very easy to take responsibility for that. But one time, months ago, years ago maybe, Jeannie announced that you could do a wake-up sheet on something that triggered joy. You could do that. And I thought to myself, why do that? You got what you wanted. What are you fussing about? But I realized <laughs> it only, only took about three years for me to understand what she was trying to say, which is, nothing at all 
uh, your mind chooses the joy too. It. How can I come around to this? I guess I should well, start from the, a different the, angle. Yes. Well, the the, the, the point is, I want to do a worksheet around any time I think I have joy because X, Y, or Z thing outside right. of me. That something outside of me is causing my joy, that would be a really good reason to do a worksheet. Because okay, that would good. fly against this this first axiom that says I'm only experiencing the effects of my own choices. Mm-hmm. I'm only experiencing joy because I'm choosing joy in this moment. I'm only experiencing joy because of the interpretation I'm choosing and placing on this particular life event. I'm not experiencing mm-hmm. joy because of this life event. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I'm you might led remember, to think. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you might remember that recently I shared that I had a, a session with a marital couple, and um, it was not too long into the therapy process, third or fourth session, they said, you know, um, we're feeling a lot better. This is great. And I asked Mm -hmm. them to, you know, clarify what's going on. And she said, well, I'm so happy because he did, 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 did. And I said, okay, I'm glad you're happy. And I also want you to understand you're not happy because he changed this or that. And she really had a hard time with that. Yeah. We had quite the session with her trying to wrap her mind around my telling her that she was not happy because he changed. And she kept saying, but he did do this different. I said, absolutely. He did that differently. Congratulations to him for making a change in his life. And I'm trying to help you understand you're not happy because he did that. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, I've had enough years in therapy to know. I've been in rooms like this where people have come in and they've said, I want my partner to change this and this and this and this. And the partner works really hard and makes these changes. And then the person who was demanding the change says, well, I don't believe it. It's not going to last. He's only doing that because he wants me to sleep with him again. Or he's only doing that because he wants to go play golf. on, on the, And he's not, he doesn't really mean it. And so the changes have been made and the person observing throws an entirely different interpretation on it and generates upset or frustration rather than joy. Mm-hmm. It took a number of repetitions, but she finally said, okay, I think I get it. That's great. If she really did. Have you understood that at deeper levels? Probably not, but I have changed a basic thing about how I look upon a certain thing that I've done most of my life. Starting my first memory at age four, developing a crush on a friend of my mother's who took me out of the house, and we lived in a little shack on the edge of the water all summer long. It was one of those amazing things that probably doesn't happen anymore 
from the night school closed to the night before it opened, we lived in these little sunsuits and ran around barefoot, had nothing to do all day, which means we had everything to do all day, chase fiddler crabs and watch the tide come in. And I've talked, talked about that before, but my mother had a friend down, and the friend was very different from my mother. And she sat beside me on the beach and sewed me a little doll's skirt or apron, <clears throat> and I fell in love with her. My heart just burned. I adored this woman. And I've had episodes of that throughout my life, and I've called them crushes, which is kind of demeaning. It's like taking the value out of them. It invites me to feel ashamed and embarrassed as if that isn't a good thing. And if there were attachment and need and goals connected to it, yes, it wasn't a good idea to pursue it was more codependent but I've had many where I just didn't have that I just plain felt I don't want to use the word love because it's a little contaminated but felt an incredible appreciation and cherishing of someone admiration or whatever it is but it I've decided that that is a wonderful thing it just occurred to me that it's a wonderful thing and somehow the accompanying need that I've always associated with some of those seems to have gone away. Because if I think it's a wonderful thing, then I can feel balanced and even good about myself, and then I don't need that person to help me feel good about myself. I hope that makes sense. But it's been a big shift in in my feeling of well-being and independence, to have that view and to think it's a good thing and a gift and the other person's darn lucky that I feel that way about them. And, you know, even the woman in my choir who I admire so much, I just decided that I can enjoy admiring her and loving her and listening to her sing and just thinking she's great and not feel as if I've got to get her to like me that's really none of my business anyway. Uh, and somehow that's connected with doing the wake-up sheet when something good happens. I guess it's on a very deep level making a different choice. And this one happens to help heal. Something's healing. I guess I'm finished talking because I don't know where to go from there. Well, it makes very good sense that if I'm understanding that I've had a belief system that says I'm only feeling this good because of that person or having them in my life or 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 I'm seeing them as so much different and better than me, then I'm waking up to a distortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember I was reading a lot of Greg Braden's books way back along the line, and he talked about a man that he worked with who was constantly falling in love. And he would go out to pick up their lunch order and come back and have fallen in love with the girl that was, you know, at the cash register. Uh-huh. And um, 
and Greg talked about this in some some great detail, and then he said he finally had a confrontation with this man where he said, do you realize that what's happening here is you're seeing in that person attributes of yourself that you're hiding from your awareness, and that's why you think you're in love with them? You're attracted to the hidden parts of yourself that you're seeing actively displayed in them. Just let that sink in for a minute. I'm letting it sink in. That is amazing. I've I've heard that before, but I just hadn't put it with this. Anyway. Mm. Ah. Well, the the idea is that it's an inside job, right? Now, already in the way of mastery, we have read the phrase, it takes one to know one. Yeah. It's the same observation. Right? This this person, this friend of Greg Braden's was constantly thinking he was falling in love because of the attributes in the other person. Mm-hmm. And Greg was telling him, look, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend those attributes in that person if they weren't yours. That's, you know, I see what you mean, and yet in every obvious way, what this young singer has, I don't have a beautiful voice. I'm not tall. Um, I'm not young. A lot of things I don't have that I see she has. And I admire them very much. You admire her youth? Yeah. Really? So just just understand that if you play with this, play with these ideas, you're likely to uncover deeper resonating personality traits or integrities or, you know, appreciation for life or whatever. The the more you look at it, the more you're likely to uncover these things are there and that they're in you. (laughs) And remember... I don't know the absolute truth of any of this, but in the Greg Braden work, what he was talking about is that this person that Greg was working with, Greg said, what he's doing is he's resonating with these qualities that others are freely expressing that his coworker was suppressing within himself. Wow. Oh, I wish I could be as young. I wish I could be as extroverted. I wish I could be as playful. I wish I could be as honest, etc. Mm. And okay, yet, I can see. 
and yet what what Greg was saying is that his coworker has those traits in him, otherwise he wouldn't be able to recognize and appreciate them, but he's just not living into them right now. He's suppressing them in different ways. Mm. And if he wakes up to his true nature and allows and, you know, swims in it, appreciates it, etc., then things are going to change. In a big way. So again, the bottom line, just to simplify, is it's all an inside job. Mm -hmm. And as the way of mastery is going to call us to and and talk about a number of different times, is um, the only way we can appreciate this in another is because it's in ourselves. Just like it says, the only way we could know that it's wrong to murder another's body is because we've had that energy within us. We may not have savored it, we may not have let it live there very long, but we've had the thought about you know, the murderous thought, etc. Mm. So the, the simplification is it's all an inside job. And everything we can do to keep bringing the focus back into ourself, our true nature, asking to be shown, clearing up our perceptions by, you know, the process of forgiveness, which is the removal of perceptions, especially those that leave us feeling something negative about ourselves or somebody else. The more we do that process, the better our lives get. And they get better because we're seeing more clearly. We're seeing more clearly our Mm -hmm. true nature and the true nature of the people and the world around us. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. With this woman, I can see some things that she does that I wish I could do. She is more dignified she reserves herself she doesn't go overboard being friendly for instance which could go two ways she's she doesn't talk much about herself and you know here I am on the radio show talking about myself all the time she has a something held apart and in reserve that she's not just so, yeah, I can see that she she has a kind of, even though she's much younger, she has a kind of dignity about her that I don't feel I can take. You don't feel even that what? I can take it for myself, do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> even, though when I, even though it's already there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... That comes as a fact. Oh, yeah. No, when I, mm, I... It's there when I teach. I have a different person teaching. Somehow I just know my stuff and it gets very simple. And I run a good, good fitness class. I don't feel as if I'm even awake during it in some ways. I'm just focused on what we're going to do next. 
focusing on what the students are doing, feeling a great fondness for them, appreciation that they're hanging in there and working hard. And um, What makes me so well when I do that? I don't maintain it in my life, but I probably could. <laughs> well, and, and here, here's, here's the thing is that what's probably happening in other areas is that mm-hmm. the traumas and the woundedness and the younger parts of yourself are getting resonated in activity. And when you're at the top of your game, when you're in the teaching role, when it's something you absolutely know, those things aren't getting resonated. Yeah. So before we forget about it, I thought I'd ask, do you remember our conversation about who was talking to who what day and who was on first and who was on second? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that in that conversation I was talking about the book Give and Take. Did you ever look into that book? I didn't. I wrote it down. I haven't done a darn thing about it. So I I think that, you know, the the emotional work around over responsibility, et cetera, is probably mm. the, the the core stuff at the emotional level and yet Mm. at the intellectual level it might benefit you to take a look at adam grant's book or at least you know find a way to get a summary of it or you know listen to what i already said about it because the primary things that he found that separate givers who are at the poverty level from givers who are at the way above average socioeconomic level are critical things like the givers at the high end of the spectrum only give from their abundance. And they give in ways that nourish them as well as others. Mm -hmm. And then they give to givers far more than they give to takers or matchers. So they find people who you might call a multiplier, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's a giver is going to be giving what they have to their culture, to their community, to their family and friends in a way that amplifies the gifts rather than be hoarding the talents kind of thing. And so when we give to people who are givers or are multipliers, we're making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. When we give, so interesting. just automatically because somebody told us we're supposed to be giving, mm. there's a story from the uh, Course in Miracles Made Easy book, I believe it is, with Alan Cohen, and he talks about learning to pay attention and ask of life, you know, what's mine to do in this moment and that moment. And he talked about how there's a person who's living their life with the belief that they're supposed to give money to homeless people. Mm -hmm. And so they do, and it works out great. And they do, and it works out great. And then one day they do, they give money to a homeless person, and the homeless person falls around the street. Uh, around the corner and gets in an alley and mugs them. 
and and that that's not good. I mean, why is that happening to me in this energetic universe? And how am I getting, you know, how, how is my good deed getting punished, etc.? And what they talk about in that book is that if I'm doing it just because I've got this idea in my mind that says this is the kind of person I am. I always give money to homeless people, or I always give to charities, or remember the story that you mentioned to Michael not too long ago about the person you know who you asked him, how do you do this? And he said, whenever I'm in a situation, if anybody asks me for something, I give it to them. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> well, this story, this theme from The Course in Miracles Made Easy was saying that's not really a very high-level way to go through life. It's probably far better to go through life wide awake and asking for inspiration day in and day out, asking to be shown what's mine to do in this particular situation, rather than living Mm. from some dogma that says, I'm the kind of person who gives to whoever needs it. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of set myself up to be in a situation where if enough people are asking me for stuff in a short enough period of time, I run out of things to give and or time or energy or, you know, good mood, tolerance, et cetera, and then I get crabby and or then I'm in need of, you know, charity myself just to survive. And as you talked about, you've got a friend in that group who's not about to do that because he, then people would have to take care of him, right? He's not yeah. going to sell all and follow Jesus kind of thing because mm-hmm. even though he's not obsessed with, the material things, and that's not his top priority, he doesn't want to be homeless. Right. Where somebody has to feed him and clothe him and give him shelter. So the ideas from the Adam Grant book, Give and Take, might be good for you to get some parameters around things as you're trying to do the emotional work. Okay. <clears throat> because you might find that you like the ideas in that book or the ones we've just talked about, and yet you can't say no whenever anybody asks you. And then that's the emotional block that would, you know, find some good resolution if you did the worksheets around over responsibility, et cetera. Yeah. that make sense? It does. It's bringing up an issue between him, Bingham, and me having to do with this family we've helped for years in Mississippi. Um, And I don't need to go into it except that I came from a family that didn't, that worked very hard to have enough. Everything was secondhand, dented, unlabeled cans, my mother would go behind the grocery store and get wilted vegetables that had been thrown out. She'd make stews, and we were fine. We had enough, but it was at some ingenuity and effort by my mother who counted every penny that came into the household. And then I married Tim Bingham, who we dated for quite a while, and he said, I, I have a confession. And I said, what? And he said, I'm rich. 
And it turns out he's not as rich as rich as somebody might think of, billions and billions, not at all. But he was afraid that I was interested in him because he had money. And I was brought up to be careful, but I never even thought. I always figured I'd have enough. We always did. It was like a given. And I said, oh, well, that's nice. So, and he said, what? You know, what? You don't care? And I said, well, we'll be fine either way. And he said, I can't believe you're saying that. And we are very different. I, whoops, I'm sorry. Are you still there? I pressed a button on my phone. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I'd love to read this book and maybe even read it, have Tim read it too and discuss these things because um, we approach giving in a very different way. And since I'm not the breadwinner and he is, um, we we come to disagreements on some things. Just We have the money and this person needs it. How about it? He'll say, no, I'm stretched too far. I don't want to do that. He'll give a hard no, you know, whenever it strikes him. And I think, oh, my God, uh, we really could do this. Why aren't we doing this? And anyway, it's all about what that book sounds as if it's about. Yeah, and, and there's some, some really good questions there. Like, um, should you do everything just because you can? Good now, isn't question, that, Dr. Tim. But, but isn't that kind of like just living from a, a fixed belief or a dogma rather than living awake and aware and observing in the moment and asking to be shown what's mine to do here and how can I be a blessing to myself and others, right? This is not just how can I be a blessing to others, it's myself and others because if I'm connected to everyone and everything, as these teachings tell us, anything I do that's truly good for me can't be bad for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And mm. so if it's really good for me to watch my finances so that I don't end up overextended or in the poor farm or whatever, mm-hmm. needing somebody to rescue me, then that can't be bad for anybody else. It may not be the perfect easy solution that the other people want in this moment as they're mm-hmm. looking at you know what they assume my resources are, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that it's the right thing for me to do to just give indiscriminately. Yeah, and I I don't think we do. Yeah, but you're right. You're right. It's worth looking at very much more in an organized way. Well, and if you and Tim both read a book like this, it might help you have those conversations in a way that's more productive. Yeah. Because then you can be on the same page and making decisions that are going to, you know, benefit you both and or perhaps overstress the system. And, and you know, the, the, the primary thing, and I don't remember all of the, the, the points that Adam Grant made in that book, but one of the primary things is the people who were givers – who ended up in the top 25% of the socioeconomic level, one of the keys was they only gave after they and their family were well taken care of. 
Mm-hmm. So they were giving from their abundance. They weren't, you know, one of the things that my grandfather, who was a, a man of means, what he would say is, you never spend the principal. Yeah. You're always just spending the interest. Mm-hmm. And you do things to help the principal grow, and then it gains more interest, but you never spend the principal. And that may be one of those concepts that somebody who's using Adam Grant's book, you know, talks about. So, you know, like, like unless you have infinite resources, you can't help everybody the way you would like to. Right? You've run into this. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? There's there's yeah. a finite number of dollars in the bank or coming in on a mm-hmm. regular basis, even yeah. if you're a trust fund baby, as they call them. And, uh, you know, there are what powerful examples in our lifetime of people with many millions of dollars who are in debt. Yeah. How can that be? You know, like... Um, M.C. Hammer is one name that comes to mind. Many, many millions of dollars this guy was making. You can always spend more than you make. Is it wise? No, but it's very possible. And there are all kinds of people that will help you do it. Now, some of those people want to sell you a yacht, and some of those people just want you to buy them a house. And if you're the one who's in the position with the purse strings, your hands on the purse strings, how, you know, the, the, the question is, is begged, how do I make a good decision about this? Do I make my best decision about this from a dogma, from a, a fixed belief that says, right. I always help whenever anybody asks? Or do yeah. I make the best decisions about that when I'm living in the moment and, and living from the question and asking to be shown and, and that's what Way of Mastery would ask us to do, to understand, right. you know, in in the very first, before we even get into the, the the text, it says, here's a promise. Do these three things, and your success will be assured. What are those three things? Give up everything you think you know. Well, you can't live from a dogma mm-hmm. if if you've given up everything you think you know. Mm-hmm. What's the next thing? Give up everything you think you want or need. What's the third thing? Find a way to look lovingly on everything that's ever happened in your life that you've done or anybody else has done around you or to you and look lovingly on, the way it says it is, any place that fear has made a home in your mind. So in other words, choose for love over fear in every situation. Mm especially those in your mind, in your history, in your thoughts about yourself, in your negative judgments about yourself and others. And that is the core of the forgiveness process, to dismantle the judgments and therefore to dismantle the the negative perceptions that those judgments have given rise to. So there's probably going to be some emotional blockages to you 
doing those things that Adam Grant might lay out that the successful people do even when they're givers. And if you encounter those emotional blocks, you say you'd like to do this and you just can't bring yourself to do it, that's where the tools come in. Yeah. And then when I dismantle whatever is in me that generates a negative emotional state, um, then things flow better. Thoughts? Wheels turning. <laughs> yeah. I think Tim and I do a lot of that, particularly with this family. We, Tim, at Yale, he belonged to a, a secret society, and there was an elder, elderly man there, very wealthy, who came to Tim and said, look, I've got this fortune and I don't have kids. I want to establish a scholarship fund, and I want you to be the trustee of it. It'll be principal, and every year you give away a certain amount to an institution or a cause that you, because I trust you, I like you, I think you'd handle it very well when you do it. And Tim said, what an honor, sure. After a few years passed, Tim handed the responsibility over to my two kids, um, and they divided it. And each one considers every year, where would this be good to go? And for years, they've been allocating the scholarship money to an institution or whatever. And my daughter called the other day and said, Mom, what about offering to give the scholarship money to this family? They've got two young kids. Have they been to school? Do they want to go to technical school, college, whatever? I thought that was a fabulous idea. I talked to Tim about it. He thought it was a fabulous idea. Called the mother, and she said, oh, we would love that. But then I said to her, where are your kids in school? She said, well, my son just graduated college, and he's got a job as an air conditioner repairman or something, and he's about to start work. So he's all set. The daughter is going to go to college in after next year, and she's been taking AP courses. She's an excellent student, and she would really, it would want, if she doesn't get a scholarship, and she might, it would be wonderful to have that money. So already I'm thinking, this is a family. It was not just asking for a donation and not doing anything. They have been very responsible and the mother is carrying too much of a load, making $12 an hour and trying to keep her kids in food and clothes and shelter and trying to maintain a house. She built herself years ago, and the mortgage is too high, and she really is beyond her means right now. How, you know, so we're, we're doing what I think Adam Grant says the people with means are doing at some extent, and we've been talking to the mother the mother's quite sick. She has an aneurysm. She may not even live very long. Then the kids will be orphans, and we're thinking about what that means and hoping that that's not true. But already we're, we're not just pouring money in. She has bills week by week, and Tim doesn't feel terribly good about covering those bills. My daughter, on the other hand, says, Mom, she's just at the edge of going under. This is a family you could really help 
And as soon as they can, they'll be on their feet and they'll run it from there. So Tim and I are having this talk. He says, I feel stretched out. We are covering a lot of bills for a lot of family members. And, uh, he says, I just don't want to do that right now, although we could. So this is the rub. This is, this is a hard thing. It's right in our face. But the book might really help. Well, I would be interested to hear how you and he have those conversations after some of the input from that book. It's a great idea. And, you know, it, and it, it might just be that it's time for somebody else to step up and help this family and that Tim is, you know, reached the point where he's, that, that the stress it would put on him isn't worth it to him. Yeah, that's how he feels. You know, whether that's right or wrong, that's how it is for him. Yeah. Well, remember, this judging, right or wrong, is a trap. Okay. Right? That's what... When you... To judge something as right or wrong, that means you have to believe you know something. And now you've already jumped right out of the pathway of the heart. Right. That's good. I hadn't connected it. Give up what I think I know. Okay. Yep. And then everything you think you want and need. And then? Well, brother, Dr. Tim, you're hitting the jackpot. What I think I want and need is to be a good person. And if I don't help these people, I'm bad. It's pretty much yes, like that. absolutely. Cancel that goal. Put that on worksheets. Absolutely. It's safe and healing for me to act in ways that others judge as a bad person. That or is for me to be seen as a I bad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Got it. Caught that mind shifter. You didn't know you even made it, I don't think. Yep, I did. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm fairly awake and aware as I sit here talking to you. And it's a powerful thing to say I just woke up and realized I don't want to be seen as a bad person. I have this really strong emotional content around being seen as a good person, you know, by myself and others. Okay, if I'm going to have a chance to see the world and my life circumstance clearly, I have to dismantle that first. Mm -hmm. Because The Course in Miracles has a line about we must come to understand the incredible power of the distortion of the way we want things to be. How we distort our perception by what we want things to be. And I remember one time years ago on this Internet show, I was at a point in my life when I was not engaged in a romantic relationship with anyone, and 
we had an internet show and then both Michelle and uh, Jeannie Rice were absolutely convinced that I talked about being in a relationship. And it was fascinating because you go back and listen to the audio and there's nothing in there. Mm. But they both wanted that for me. And Mm -hmm. they both created the perception that I had talked about being in a romantic relationship with someone. And they started talking about it. And I said, I'm sorry, but that's not accurate. Well, you said, and we go back and listen to the tape, and it wasn't there. Mm. So the Course in Miracles warns us about the distorting power of the way we want things to be. And it can be which shared. Is, yeah, oh, well, sure. I mean, and, Jeannie and, and Michelle and they, both did it. Yeah, because they, they, you know, they both had this fantasy about me as some wonderful person and and how powerful it is to have a relationship and they they were both just and they might have had some you know conversations between the two of them about those things and it led to them creating a perception that as lovely as it might be had nothing to do with actuality mm-hmm. and that's the point of all of this, that's why the Way of Mastery and the Course in Miracles and the Kaburist Manuscript try to teach us about canceling our goals and dropping everything we think we know and we everything we want and understanding about the power of the distortion that we create in our own perceptual fields when we're holding on to a desire or a craving or a longing or a goal that we don't have the capacity to just immediately initiate the action that was, you know, achieve that goal. And so, again, we talk about there's nothing wrong with that goal, right? The goal to have um, a nice relationship or have someone that you care about be in, in a nice relationship Nothing wrong with the goal, so why would I cancel it? Well, because if it's got me distorting reality, if it's got me hearing things that were never said and seeing things that were never actually occurred, then that's not very useful. That's like right. you know putting blinders on me. So, according to our Agreement. I'm turning on the microphone for area code 541. You're in the air. Are you there? Is this Celinda? Welcome. Yes, it is. I had to get to the door to shut it and then back to unmute. Um, Bravo to both of you for this marvelous conversation. I just love it. And it's exactly what I'm working around now. And I just wanted to thank you both for um, for your sharing and your honesty and, and your willingness to investigate things perhaps that might be uncomfortable because you're helping. So, me so how much. how is this how is this exactly what you're working on now? How what how's well, it relevant? Work, well, I have a worksheet 
that I just did that I can share tomorrow with you. And I also woke up with a totally different perception about the issues from the heart. And um, I don't have time to go into it today, but I will put it on hold for tomorrow. And uh, just it just interfaces beautifully with my worksheet for me, and also um, on um, on the the awareness that I woke up with this morning of how I had limited what Yeshua was saying about for out of the heart of man comes the issues of life or the issues from that person and so I'll share that with you tomorrow okay I just wanted to to express my appreciation for how much I'm being helped by your and Susan and anyone else's ongoing conversations um, with ongoing themes like like you're working with and it brought me to do a worksheet I'm, when I feel led to do a worksheet I add them to my other processes my healing processes that I'm doing and I just am grateful so grateful alright well I look forward to hearing more about that tomorrow and um if you're going to do that, the earlier you can do that in the show, the better. And um, although it's welcome at any time. So I'll mute you so you can listen to the second hour. Thank you for the call and the input. Susan, uh, any last comments from you? No, I'll get the book and start going on it. It's a good idea. Okay. All right. Well, as always, thank you for the call and the input. It's great to hear from you. I'll mute you so you can listen to the second hour if you so choose. And we're down to our last couple minutes, so I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. And uh, first, what was the book that uh, you were referring to there? The book is simply titled Give and Take. Give and Take. Okay. And it's by Adam Grant, G-R-A-N-T. Right. Okay. Thanks. All right. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. Today is Monday, December 4th, 2023. And um, Michael is in another project right at the moment, and I just had a very intense physical therapy, have an earache and a headache. So I am going to play on Creating Consciously Part 2. And tomorrow is also a pre-recorded show, not for any reason other than it is Aria's Christmas play at school that starts right at 2 o'clock. So we'll be playing another um interview between Mitch Rabin and Michael for tomorrow's show. But today's On Creating Consciously, Part 2. Enjoy. So that statement, let thine eye be single and thy body will be filled with light, is a really key and important statement. You think about it, it's like, well, what does that mean? Your eye single. Well, I got two eyes. What do you do with that? Well, if you go to the Aramaic, what it said was, let your reality be focused or singular. And then if you talk to the physicist, the physicist will tell you that matter is light energy solidified. 
So when you focus your mind energy, the reality that you hold in your mind, on one singular thing, it will be produced in the world of matter. There's been an interesting piece of work done with a, uh, an Indian Swami, a fellow named uh, see, Swami Rama. And they took him into the laboratory, I believe it was at Stanford University if I remember correctly. And they, they drew a circle on the back of his hand. And they did a skin biopsy in that circle. Perfectly healthy cells. He spent 30 minutes meditating. They did another skin biopsy. Cancer cells. He spent another 30 minutes in meditation. Did another skin biopsy. Not a cancer cell there. Perfectly healthy cells. What really runs this energy system? And I would add that when we look at, you know, we had that chart in the first half. On the left-hand side was cause. On the right-hand side is effect. I would offer that the predominant resonant energy in the system governs the physiology of your system. Now, in the laboratory, they're showing us, in, in, the, in the cell biologist laboratory, they're showing us that, and in fact it comes from the uh, writings of a woman named Candace Pert, who's a former head of brain bioresearch at the National Institute of Health. And Candace Pert says this, as a medical researcher, every thought you think produces a molecule in your body. And the quality of the molecule matches the quality of the thought. The molecule is called a neuropeptide. There are receptor sites in every cell for those neuropeptides. And what they're showing us in the laboratory, in the cell biologist laboratory, is that when the cell lands on the receptor site, the cell replicates the neuropeptide inside of itself, in the cellular structure. So now on a cellular level, you're living with the effect of your thoughts. If you go back into the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we go into this in depth in our workshop, Empowered to Heal, we go into that Sermon on the Mount. But the Beatitude that we're told says, Blessed are they who mourn their wrongs, for they shall be comforted, doesn't say that at all in Aramaic. What it says is that first word, blessed are they, is traditionally translated that way out of the Greek scriptures or, or renditions. In the Aramaic, what it says is a latent neural structure implanted by God to guide you to happiness and well-being will become your conscious possession, you who, and then each of the Beatitudes is an instruction. And the one that normally we hear translated as mourn their wrongs for they will be comforted in Aramaic says look into their errors in thought for they will be cured of mental stress. Now you put together what the cell biologists are telling us what happens. You think a thought, it produces a molecule. The molecule lands on a receptor site and it replicates itself inside the cell. Would you say that's called mental stress? Do you think this guy knew 2,000 years ago what he was talking about on a physiological level? You better believe he knew exactly what he was talking about. You want to be cured of mental stress? You've got to look into the molecules that you put into your system that are destructive to your system. Standing in hate of someone is like drinking a poison and hoping they'll die. Because that molecule lands in your cellular structure and replicates itself and produces stresses on your system that if you don't deal with them will kill you. That's what Jesus was teaching 2,000 years ago. He was teaching people how to take charge of their own physiology. Now, when you start to take charge of that process, 
What you'll see is that the strongest resonating energy is what produces the result in the system. How is it? We've all heard of the fellow who went to the doctor, had a totally clean bill of health, and six months later, got sick, they took him into the hospital, did an exploratory, sewed him up, sent him home, said, too filled with cancer, we can't do anything, you're going to die, and three days later he was dead. It's like, wait a minute, how is that possible? Six months ago he was perfectly healthy. What happened? Well, if we go along in life continuously engaging in the disease of negativity, in fear, in hatred, in vengeance, in gossip, in slander, in condemnation, we're continuously putting into our cellular structure the mind energy of that, which is destructive. It, literally, in the ancient languages, it was said it defiled our temple. And when we defile our temples, we're in the process of destroying it. And the minute that the, the predominant resonant energy shifts from one to another frequency, the whole system shifts with it. Let's, how many of, uh, let's say, you drive the same route to the office every morning, and you're listening on your stereo, on your, uh, your uh, car stereo, to this nice, quiet FM music. You're rolling along, and the same corner Every day when you hit that corner, all of a sudden the radio station you're listening to disappears and you've got this rock and roll noise that comes in on top of you. How many have had that experience in your car radio with the FM? Well, the way the FM, or maybe you're listening to your rock and roll noise and this quiet FM music comes in, whatever. <laughs> but what happens when that takes place? Well, the tuned circuitry of an FM radio is set up in a way that only one frequency can govern the system at a time. It's not so in the AM band. You notice you can turn your AM radio on and perhaps two or three stations come in on top of each other at once. You notice that doesn't happen with FM. The circuitry is tuned so that you've got to have a certain percentage of signal strength and that station locks in and runs the whole system. Well, in exactly the same way as if you're driving away from the station you're listening to, and let's say it takes 51% signal strength, if you go from 51 to 50 to 49, and you're driving into the field of a new station, and it goes from 49 to 50 to 51, all of a sudden, it switches stations. If we have the person whose physiology is expressing health, and they continue in the fear mode, or the anger mode, or the hatred mode, when that signal shifts and it moves and becomes the predominant resonant energy, all of a sudden the whole cellular structure starts to shift into disease. That's how someone can bring about a disease process that quickly. And so it's the focused energy. Let thine eye be single. And so if the predominant resonant energy in the system moves from health to disease, we see the system moving into disease. Now how does miracle healing happen? Well, all you have to do is reverse the process. Unfortunately, we're not used to seeing people reverse the process. It's not unusual to hear about Joe or Harry or Bill that had a totally clean bill of health and they're now in this terrible process or this terrible disease has stricken them. Why do we think that to have somebody who has a disease process going on and we hear that they've moved to health all of a sudden is a miracle? It's not miraculous. I mean, it's miraculous in that it happens, but it follows a lawful process that we can understand. If you go back to Jesus, and you know, a lot of people want to worship the process that he did. 
like he was the miracle worker. But if you listen to him, he said, if I come in my own name, I'm a false prophet. And then he said what it took to be healed and to be whole. And you'll notice that when people in his field healed, he didn't say, no, no, yeah. look at what I did. See that? Pretty good, eh? Notice that's not what he did. What did he say? He said, your faith. In other words, where you allowed your mind to go is where your physiology went. Yes, he says, I supported you. I showed you the way. I didn't. In fact, he said, I flung a door open wide that nobody can close. Now, those who are living in poverty and want to control others want to close that door. That's why they had to get rid of him. That's why they turned his teaching into religion, from law to religion. He was telling people how the creative process of life works. And he said, your faith did the healing. It wasn't about him. It was about what you do with your mind energy system. Where you allow your system to go is where your physiology is going to follow. And it doesn't matter if you're walking toward the precipice of disease and you're a day from death, a, a half a day, two hours, two minutes from death, if you reverse the mind energy process, you can step back and two minutes to ten minutes to two days to two weeks to total health by shifting the way the energy is focused in your system. And forgiveness is a major key for how that process works. But you can't look at the effect world and believe in it and go to the cause world at the same time. Now, when we did that equation in the first half of the workshop, we had the cause world on one side of the equation. We had cause over here. We had effect over here. Now, an interesting thing in the Aramaic language is that the word cause and effect are singular in Aramaic. They're not separated. The Aramaic mind would not think of engaging in a cause without experiencing its effect. Sometimes it takes time for the effect to unfold, and so it looks like the cause and the effect aren't connected, but in Aramaic, one word represents both. And when you recognize that your creative process follows where your mind energy goes, you can't serve cause which would be the realm of the creator of God, and effect, which would be the realm of matter or mammon. Remember, you cannot serve God and mammon, for you will cling to one and despise the other. So if you're looking at the effect world and letting your mind energy be sourced by the effect world, then you're worshiping the world. You're serving the world. And so you will produce a world that looks like that, and you'll be limited to that. If you give that process up and go first to the Creator, then you have the option and the opportunity to go to the cause level and no longer be stuck in the effect world. And I believe that what Jesus was telling us 2,000 years ago was that our purview, the, the thing that we are capable of, is to live on this side of the equation. That's where we're capable of living. But most people are stuck on this side of it, looking at what's already existing in the world and letting their mind energy be so focused in that area and therefore sourced from that area. You go back and you'll remember that, um, that Jesus said to people, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? In other words, everything on this side of the equation 
And Lewis's soul, which is that which is at cause level, on this side of the equation. What does it profit you to do that? And then, do you remember what he did after he said that? Do you know what his next act was? Take a look at it. It's an interesting, interesting thing to look at. He was talking about which world you're focused in. What does it profit you to get everything together here? You know, the purpose of life is not about he who dies with the most toys wins. And when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. That's not what it's about. But if you're caught in that world, you can't connect with this world. And when you connect with this world, there's a whole other game in town. And immediately after he spoke of that, he stepped up the frequency of his body. Body in quotes, remember. He stepped it up to the disciples who were watching. There was this great emission of light. And then Moses and Elijah brought down the frequencies of their so-called bodies and the disciples could see the three of them having a conversation. I think what he was saying is, what does it profit you to get everything on this side of the equation together if you can't connect with and do what happens on this side? Like there's a whole other game in town. And when we recognize that there's a whole other game in town, we, in our, our workshop, Purpose, Personal Power, and Commitment, we go into, what's the other game? How do you determine what your part is in the other level of things? But that there is another level that we are capable of living at. And we can't serve both of them. It just can't be done. And so the decision has to be made as to which direction you're going to go with that. And as you do, there are four stages that one will tend to go through. And those four stages are quite identifiable. And the four stages go like this. The first stage is never enough. And the person who lives in the world of never enough usually simply scrambles to get more. Well, I'll just work harder. I'll just get another job. I'll just get still another job to try and make enough money. And they never deal with the cause level in themselves, and so never catch up. It's always the game of never enough. If you recognize yourself living in the realm of never enough, and again, it doesn't just apply in the realm of money, it applies in the realm of health, in the realm of relationship, aliveness, joy, create to every area of life. But if you recognize any area of your life where you're living in never enough, what do you have to do if you're ever going to correct it? The requirement is to deal with the mind energy that you hold of never enough. When you deal with the mind energy of never enough, then everything's going to go. And things are going to change. And then you'll go to stage two. And stage two is a stage of day late, and dollar short. Anybody recognize that one? 
Now, that day late dollar short mentality is another level. It's a step beyond never enough. But you look at the average person that's a day late dollar short and, and they just pray for more money. And they just work harder for more money. But they never deal with the cause level of them that creates day late dollar short. And if you can identify with that, you might remember back to a time when, you know, maybe you earned $50 a week. And the bills were 52. And you got paid on Saturday, the bills were due on Friday, right? And so people said, oh God, if I could just, if only I could make $100 a week. So what happened? That person got to the point where they made $100 a week, right? How much were the bills? 104. Still got paid on, on Saturday, the bills were due on Friday. And the person who's stuck in the effect world says, oh God, please, how about if I could just make $200 a week? And what happened? They got to the point, inflation happened, prices went up, wages went up. They made $200 a week. How much are the bills now? 208 And on and on it goes. You know, the, the, the week that this person who's at day late, dollar short, got a check from dad in the mail. Dad, you know, maybe struck it at the horses or something and sent a check for $500. This person went down to the mailbox, found a check for $500. It's like, wow, look at this world. I've got enough money to pay all my bills on time, ahead of time, and I'm going to have money left over. That's what happened in their head. But remember, it's take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues of life. What went on in their heart? Well, I had the privilege a few years ago of getting to do some work with a, a gentleman named Marcel Vogel. Marcel was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. And Marcel developed instrumentation in the laboratory with which to take a picture of the high-energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. That literally, when we hold a reality in our mind, we set up an energy wave with that reality. That reality is an energy moving in us, and motion creates a wave. Now, I like to call that high-energy wave the psychic megaphone. So the person who gets the check from dad for an extra $500, whose mind energy is at day late dollar short, what resonates in them when they get that extra money? Well, of course, on the conscious level, it's oh boy. But on the unconscious level, a message goes out. Hey world, I've got an extra $500 and I'm supposed to be a day late and a dollar short. Who's going to take it? And you'll notice on the 29th of the month, the transmission fell out of the car. How much was the bill? $500. And they're right back again. We are creative beings. We will draw the circumstances that will produce exactly the results that our mentality calls for. And because the human mind, and this is a principle we go into in the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop, because the human mind is an evidential device, if one lives at day late, dollar short, one will only see the evidence that supports life called day late, dollar short. The abundance could drop right at this person's feet, but they won't be able to see it. Their mind will not produce the evidence. Or if it falls right into their hands. How many stories have we read about people who won the lottery? Millions of dollars. And five years later, they were right back in the same financial condition they were in the day before they won the lottery. Why? Because we're creative beings. And if we don't get a shift in the mind energy system, we don't get a shift in the effect world, except that perhaps temporarily there will be one. So if one's at day late dollar short, what one needs to deal with is the mind energy of day late and dollar short. Then once one's done that, you go to the third level. And the third level is the level of just enough.
Now, when one's at the level of just enough, well, you know, whatever the bills are, if the bills happen to go up, well, they'll create an extra few hundred dollars. If the bill goes down, they'll lose a few hundred dollars of income. They'll just kind of ride this wave evenly where, well, there's always just enough. There's never any left over, but, you know, it, it ends meet. And if one really is engaging in their healing process, consciously and purposely, and dealing with their mind energy system, this is usually the stage where the vitality goes up sufficiently that they reach a new depth of being able to see their old never enough and day late dollar short energy. And so what we see is that this person holding at deeper levels, never enough and day late dollar short, they've, they've worked through some layers of that and so having built their vitality, unburdened themselves, they get to just enough, then they dig in this new layer of never enough and day late dollar short. And as that energy starts to be accessed and move out of the system, it creates effects. All of a sudden, the person who's got just enough, turn around, the bottom falls out, and they're back at poverty again. It's like, oh my God, what's wrong here? Well, understand the healing process. Nothing is wrong there. That's perfectly on target. As that energy is leaving the system, it produces an effect. The person who doesn't understand what healing looks like will tend to get trapped in that effect, take it back in, and they're right back at never enough again as opposed to the person who understands what's happening. Again, this doesn't just occur in the realm of money. This occurs in every area of life. Whereas the person who understands says, ah, I'm clearing out some of my deeper levels of never enough and day late, dollar short. So it creates effects in my world, but I'm not going to get lost in that effect. I'm going to look at it and say, boy, I'm glad that energy's moving out. I'm willing to go through the symptoms that are required. In the disease process, people who hold diseased energies that are debilitating to them, if they're ever going to work through their debilitation, the energy of that debilitation is going to have to come up. And on the way out of the system, it's going to become expressed in their physiology. And it's going to look like perhaps a terrible disease. But if they're consciously engaging in their healing process and understanding what that's about, and we go into the, the healing crisis or the healing process in the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop, is they understand what that looks like, they keep doing their work, and that's where they have faith. That's where the faith faculty comes in. They know what the goal is, and they keep their eye on that goal rather than getting lost in the effects. There was a great psychologist, I forget what his name was, but he coined a poem that reflects that very well. And it says, as you travel through life, no matter what your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. That you've got to keep your eye on where you're going and let the effects unfold in your world. But make sure that you stay connected with cause with your focus whatever happens in your life. And as you stay connected with cause, you will become more and more empowered and be able to dig up these old energies and move them out of your system until you arrive at that destination, which is level four, and that is total abundance. And to deal with the mind energy of just enough, is what allows you to move 
to that level and clearing out each and every one of these other levels in regard to your finances, in regard to your relationships, in regard to your health, in regard to just simple aliveness and joy in life. The principle is identical in every area. So what I'd like to do now is step into an exercise that looks at some of the mind energy that perhaps you've accumulated in your life. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, whether you're on the video here or in our live audience, what I'm going to ask you to do is get into a comfortable, quiet place where you can go into kind of a meditative state. And we're going to start to touch into some of those other levels. And so I'm going to ask you to just get quiet, sit comfortably, and if you would, have a pen and paper available so that if you touch into anything significant for you, you can just make a quick note of it, just jot it down. And so allow yourself to take a deep breath. If there's any tension anywhere in your body, breathe into that tension and let it soften. And as you breathe into that tension and let it soften, I'm going to ask you to allow yourself to go into some different circumstances. The first one I'm going to invite you to do is to let yourself be in the space of total poverty. Imagine that you're living in this environment where you are absolutely poverty stricken. The worst environment you can think of. Let yourself in your mind's eye be there for a few moments. Now, if you have a concern about, oh, I want to, don't want to go there because I might create it, we're going to invite you to go there, and part of the process will be cleaning it up. So if there's any there, anything that resonates with it, we'll use this as an opportunity to clear it out of the system, or at least to, to start the process of clearing it out. So take a deep breath. Let yourself be in that place of poverty. And as you find yourself there, imagine that your parents and your siblings come to visit. How do you feel about them seeing you in this place of dire poverty? How do they feel about it? What do you say to them? What do they say to you? Are there any messages, actual or implied, that would key you into any mind energy that you hold of limitation? Any mind energy that would hold you back in your creative process? So look carefully at being visited by them in these circumstances. So you have your visit, they pack up, they're getting ready to leave. They don't know it, but as they leave, you can hear every word they're saying to each every other, pardon me, to each other, every thought they're thinking. Are there any messages, actual or implied? that might show you the source of some mind energy that has limited you in your life. 
And then a second group of visitors comes, and they're some of the early authority figures in your life. Perhaps ministers, teachers, priests, rabbi, early employers, neighbors. Those early authority figures come to visit. How do they feel about seeing you in this place of poverty? And how do you feel? What do you say to each other? Are there any messages, actual or implied, that might show you the source of some of the mind energy that has limited you in your creative process? If so, make a note of it. They leave, and then a third group of visitors comes. And these are some of your early childhood friends. Are there any messages, actual or implied, that come from your interaction with them? That would show you any possible source of mind energy that might limit you. They leave. You can hear every word they're saying, every thought they're thinking. Is there any mind energy there that you may have picked up on at any time in your life that would limit your ability to create? If so, make a note of it. And there's a place where you might want to do some worksheets or some of the other tools to clear that energy out of your system. And now as you breathe deeply, you know, in the ancient Aramaic language, Jesus taught of an elemental force that existed in us. In Aramaic, it was called Ruku Dukudsha. That elemental force is a force that, by definition, broke off the effects of error. And so what I suggest that you do at this point is if you've uncovered anything in this poverty experience, that you invite that force into every level of your being, your genetics, your physiology, your emotions, your mind, and your soul, that any limiting energy, any energy that would defile your temple in any way, now be liberated. And allow yourself to take a deep breath and find any tensions anywhere in your system and just let them go. And as you breathe into that, let every part of you soften and let loose. In the Aramaic language, the word forgive is to cancel, to let loose, to untie. That every image, every thought, every emotion that would lock in poverty now is softened by that internal force. It is loosened and let loose from you. And that is replaced with joy and complete aliveness.
and abundance. In the Aramaic language where we're told that the scriptures speak about a fall of man, in Aramaic it doesn't speak of the fall of man. What it says in Aramaic is that we forgot how to live in abundance. Ask now to be restored to your rightful place of abundance in every area of your life. And then allow this scene of poverty to just fade from your, your vision. And then move to a new place. And in this new place, you're in a place of mediocre. It's small, it's adequate, it's clean, it's home, but it's pretty mediocre. Allow yourself to be in that place of mediocre. And now, that first group of visitors, your early authority figures, come to visit you. And as you interact with those early authority figures, are there any messages as they see you in these mediocre surroundings? Any messages, actual or implied, that might key you into any limitation that you've bought into from them? You know, sometimes messages of, well, you just deserve mediocre. You'll never be able to do more. Or you've got to just stay at that standard because you're not allowed to rise above your parents. Or whatever messages might be there. Just allow them to come to awareness. Make a note of them if they're important, if there's any work to be done in that area. You spend some time with these early authority figures. You complete your visit with them. They're getting ready to leave. They don't know it, but you can hear every word they're saying. You can pick up on every thought they're thinking as they leave. Are there any messages, actual or implied, that would limit your ability to create your life in complete abundance in every area of your life? And then a second group of visitors comes, and this time it's your parents and your siblings. As they see you in these circumstances of ordinary, these circumstances of mediocrity, how do they feel? How do you feel? What do you say to each other? Are there any messages, actual or implied, that you can see might limit, might have, have given you some mind energy that you bought into that might limit your ability to create in your life. Breathe into it. Make a note if there's anything there. And again, remember we're talking about messages from any aspect. Your financial life, abundance in that area. Your relationship life. Abundance in that area. Your health, your aliveness, your joy. Can you see any messages there that might have locked in for you with which you've limited your ability to create in any of those areas? 
If so, breathe deeply, let them soften, and let them go. And now that third group of visitors comes. And they're your early childhood friends. They come and visit you in these circumstances of mediocre. How do you feel? How do they feel about being there? What do you say to each other? Are there any messages, actual or implied? You know, any messages like, oh, well, we're glad you stayed in the same realm as the rest of us. Or how dare you outdo us? Or why haven't you done so well? Or we knew you'd never do so well? Or are there any messages, actual or implied, that come from your interaction with those early childhood friends that you can see might have impacted the way you've created your life? If so, breathe deeply into your structure, let it soften, and let it go. Once again, invite that power. You know, that power was called Ruka Dukuchi. It's been translated from the Aramaic language as the Holy Spirit in the scriptures we normally see. But in the Aramaic language, there's no disembodied spirit being that's referred to. This Holy Spirit, this Ruka Dukutcha in Aramaic is an actual elemental force in our minds that if we invite it to go to work in us, we'll change our minds. That, that it's, a, it's a power capable of processing and changing those energies that we hold within us. The denial of that force is what leaves us in unforgiveness. Because in our own minds, we don't have the processing power change that so it's important to invite that force in rather than deny it access to your mind it knows exactly how to process you through whatever your limitation is if you're willing to stop holding on and if you're willing to truly let go of whatever it is you're holding on to it will shift it and bring it to perfection for you Without that force, there is no forgiveness possible. So let yourself breathe deeply into any of the thoughts and feelings that come from these mediocre surroundings that have placed you in mediocrity in any area in your life if you found yourself there. Let them soften and let them go. And now move into a third area. This time we're going to invite you to go to absolute and total abundance. I mean, you've got opulence this time. The front foyer is 10,000 square feet. There's a million dollars in Rembrandts on the walls of the foyer. You're sitting back in your library. It's a magnificent library. The only library in the country that even comes close to it, and it's a second by a long shot, is the Library of Congress. It's such a library. 
So you're sitting in these opulent surroundings, leisurely doing some reading, and the butler shows in your parents and siblings. How do you feel about being there as your parents and siblings come in? How do they feel about seeing you there? Are there any messages, actual or implied, that come from them that you might see would limit your ability to create opulence? Are there any messages? If so, breathe deeply, make a note of them if they're important ones to work on. And your parents and siblings are now getting ready to leave. And you've got a gift for each of them. Watch very carefully how they receive this gift. It may tell you a lot about the mind energy you have of receiving. You reach into the desk drawer and you hand them each a set of keys for their new Mercedes. How does your mother receive it? How does your father receive it? How do each of your siblings receive that key that you hand to them? Is there any mind energy about receiving that you can see has rubbed off on you from their way of receiving that would inhibit your ability to receive Abundance. Remember that in the Aramaic, the fall was not a fall. It says in Aramaic, we forgot how to live in abundance. We forgot how to live out of our connected space to our source and appreciate what comes out of that connectedness. At workshop I told you about earlier, there was a woman at that workshop that came up to me afterward and, and told me about a, a friend in her life that had been dealing with some abundance issues. And just stay with this opulence for a few minutes. She'd been dealing with abundance issues and she'd asked her friend for some help. And her friend was really looking for guidance on how to help her. And that night she had a dream. And in her dream, God took her into this huge warehouse. It, was, it went as far as the eye could see and stacked from floor to ceiling on every square foot of every aisle of this warehouse were these beautifully wrapped gifts and presents. And she turned to God and she said, God, why are you showing me this? And God said, this is the warehouse where I store all the gifts that my children have asked me for and then refused delivery when I went to give them to them. Notice how your parents and your siblings receive and see if there's anything in yourself to clean up about receiving. So your parents and your siblings leave with their new Mercedes. And then that second group of visitors comes. This time it's the early authority figures. Again, you're leisurely reading and the butler shows them in. How do they feel about seeing you in these circumstances? How do you feel about being there? What do you say to each other? Are there any messages, actual or implied, 
I'm amazed at how many people the message they get is, oh, you must have done something illegal to have this. Are there any messages about your abundance that came from these early authority figures? If so, make a note of it. And it gives you a key as to where to do some of your work. You have your visit with them. They're getting ready to go. You reach into the drawer once again. Watch how they receive. You hand them each a set of keys for their new Mercedes. How do they feel about receiving it? Are they able to receive it? Is there anything about receiving that you've learned from any of these early authority figures that you might want to change in you? So those visitors leave. They drive off in the new Mercedes. And then the third group of visitors comes. Those early childhood friends. How do they feel about the butler showing them in to your library? where in leisure and luxury you're reading. What do they say to you? What do you say to them? Are there any messages, actual or implied, that come from your interaction with them in these surroundings that would key you into anywhere that you may have bought into the mind energy of limitation in your creative process? If so, make a note of it. Breathe deeply. And then, these early childhood friends are getting ready to receive. Once again, you reach into the drawer. You've got a gift for each of them. Watch how they receive it as you hand them a set of keys for their new Mercedes. How do they feel about receiving that? Is there anything about receiving and the way that they do it that might have impacted the way you receive in your life. If so, make a note of where that work is to be done. Those early childhood friends leave. And now you breathe deeply and once again anything that you've touched into Anything in you on any level that would limit your ability to create total abundance in your life. You now invite that higher power into that part of you. That power that in Aramaic was called Ruka Dukuj, that elemental force that breaks off the effect of our errors. As you breathe into it and let it soften and let it go. You now find yourself back in your own home, in your own surroundings. You decide to go down to the mailbox. And as you go down to the mailbox, you reach in and you get the mail and you notice there's an envelope there and the return address is the millionaire and your name's on the envelope. Actually see that envelope in your hands as you take it out of the mailbox. 
You open it up. And in the envelope, made out to you, is a check for one million dollars in gold. The equivalent of about three hundred million dollars in paper money. It's yours. Notice how you feel about receiving that. Is there a place in you to receive that kind of abundance? If not, ask to be shown what in you needs to be undone to create a space for that to be received. You see, to receive something in your life, you have to be able to conceive of it. It's interesting how many people give birth to experiences in their lives and they never know who the father of the experience was. And so you look at that and you receive it. Now I'm going to invite you to reach for your paper and pen and with this $300 million, $100 million in gold, I'm going to invite you to make a list of ten things in your life that you're going to do differently. What are ten things in your life that are going to change? And I'm going to ask you to make that list now. If you're at home watching this video, you might want to pause it for a few minutes or just go ahead and let it run through and make that list of ten things that are going to change. And let them change as you breathe deeply. Is everybody breathing as you make that list? If you're not, I invite you to look at how you hold your breath as a way of shutting down. You know, every energy system has a switch, and the switch for the human mind energy system is the breath. Where you stop breathing is where you lock things down. And so, as you make this list, let yourself breathe deeply and freely.
And now, if you haven't finished your list, I'll invite you to go ahead and take the time to finish your list. But as you look at the things that are going to change in your life, what I'm going to invite you to do now is to change those things anyway. And start to look at what is it in you that would limit you from doing those things on the level of cause. Well, you might say, well, I don't have a hundred million dollars in gold. Well, right. But remember, the level where you're a creator isn't in mammon, isn't in the realm of gold. The level where you're a creator is in the realm where you exist as a created spiritual being that has the capacity to originate mind energy. And so I'm going to invite you to start creating those things now in your life on the level of cause. And yes, there may be an incubation period, but this will unfold as you create it and as you give it energy. Now remember, you can't create it on the level where you're a creator and be mesmerized and hypnotized by what's going on in the world where maybe there's lack. Because if you're mesmerized by that, you're hypnotized by that. And if you're hypnotized by that, you'll keep creating it because that's where your mind is. That's where your treasure is. You remember the Master said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't look in the world of rust and moth. Don't look in the world where, where thieves come. Because that's not where you're a creator. That's not where your power lies. Look in the world where you're a creator. What did he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That wasn't mystical. That wasn't religious. He was saying, you, human being, you, magnificent creation of the creator, have the capacity to go to cause. You know, one of the books that was left out of the Bible is the book of Thomas. And I think maybe because there was a little too much truth in it for them to handle. But at one point, Jesus laments that how, how this magnificent creature called a human being could possibly be living in the dire poverty circumstances that they live in. The emotional, the relationship, the spiritual, the physical poverty. How is that possible? And he gave the key. He said, you've got to look first for your connection to your source. Because if you don't have your connection to your source, you can't produce the results that you want. So you've got to start to act as if you're there. Does that mean, well, okay, I'll go out and buy the new $50,000 car tomorrow. Well, no, I don't have $10 in the bank, but I'm going to go buy the $50,000 car. No, it doesn't mean that. Spend it where you've got it. Create it on the level of cause. Start to see yourself in the space of abundance. And then start to live your life so that you spend of your abundance in the realm of the world. In other words, back up your creatorship with where you put your time, your intelligence, your money, and your energy. You look at how people look their, put their time, intelligence, money, and energy into toys and forget all about supporting their spiritual growth. What you'll find is the principle that was given in the scriptures was that you had to tithe. 
Oh, here comes the pitch for money. No, it's not about money. Tithing isn't about money. That's one part of it, but that's really a small part of it. Yes, it makes sense to, put, to invest in your spiritual process and what supports your spiritual process at a level of 10%. But more important than that, is to do it with all of your resources. I use the acronym T-I-M-E, time. You've got to arrange your life so that 10% of your time is spent in the realm of creatorship, in supporting your spiritual development, in seeking the kingdom of God. Oh, well, Michael, I can't do that. I've got two jobs. I have to work 18 hours a day. 10% would be 2.4 hours a day. How could I possibly do that? I can't. Well, I know when I first came in touch with this type of thinking, I had three businesses, I had 60 employees, I worked about 18 hours a day, nine days a week. It wasn't possible. I now spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week in this process. As you start to reorganize your life and you look at what's really important, you'll invest in what's important. And your development as a spiritual being is important. Your intelligence, your own original intelligence has to go there. Not my intelligence, yours, has to be applied to your spiritual development. Your money, yes. Your finances and your energy. Your alive, vital energy. Not at the end of the day, I go home and I'm going to have a nap. I mean, meditate for a couple of hours. You are a divine creative being created in the, in the image and likeness of the creator. I join with you in being that and living that at every moment in your life. And I appreciate the opportunity to share this time with you.